listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we get to know the best CEOs, investors, and entrepreneurs in the mining industry. I'm your host, Jamie Keach. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Today, uh, we have an unusual guest. Uh, we have Mr. Michael Hood, the ex-Lieutenant General of the Canadian Air Force and currently uh, a member of JDS Mining. He is the president of JDS Operational Technologies. Uh, you know, I guess it was a couple years ago now we had one of his colleagues, the founder of JDS Mining, Jeff Stibbert, on the show. Over the last couple of years, I got to meet and get to know Mike on several occasions. Uh, we've been wanting him to have him on the show for some time. And I think right now is quite opportune and quite serendipitous because of all the things going on in the world, which Mike is uniquely positioned to speak about compared to basically anyone else we've ever had on this show and some things happening in the mining and natural resource sector. So without further ado, Mike, how are you? Great. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on your show. So we've been thinking about this podcast for about a year now. And one of the reasons I really push to get you on now is, I guess, over the last year, particularly the last six months, a lot has changed in the world. Uh, we have the Russia-Ukraine conflict. We have escalation with China. We've got mystery uh, balloons flying over <laughs> Canada and the United States and God knows where else. I want to talk about all those things, but I'm going to ask if you can give me kind of the 30-second overview of what you do at JDS today, uh, and then I want to kind of talk about how you got there and your background and what led you to this position today. No, absolutely. So um, you would have met Jeff Stibbert, as you said, on your previous podcast. We have a privately owned group of companies, which are all really uh, around the resource sector. Everything from engineering through EPCM construction, underground drill and blast, a rail division. Mm -hmm. And Jeff's very entrepreneurial, and we've always had a lot of investments um, into technology that we believe have the potential to be disruptive uh, in the resource sector and thus additive to our clients. Um, yeah. And so we decided to group those all into one division because um, there uh, there's a number of them, um, and and it's very opportune time. Certainly, I can talk about cyber technology and the rest that we're into. But we've we've grouped those, and and I run that division, uh, JDS Operational Technologies. And you have a joint venture in that as well, right? With an Israeli company, I think yeah, we, we talked about. That's that's the model where we'll typically JV. So there's there's about three main technologies in there, but the the one that is in in the market now is a cyber technology um, that is across many sectors, uh, and and we met the founders of it and believe it would be a good fit for the resource sector. So we've JV'd with them, and we're kind of introducing it to our clients. Um, and it's pretty timely when we think about the number of cyber attacks that are going on in the resource sector, yeah. even in Canada, of, of all places. So. so let's maybe dig into that right now, actually. So when you say operational technology, what does that mean? What is the general overview of that? And then let's get into what you just mentioned, cyber attacks. Well, when most people, I'll just talk about cyber okay. probably being the most topical. Um, most people think of IT. Right? Yeah. You're protecting your computer systems and the rest. And, you know, ransomware is uh, is a job for people. You know, they're, yeah. they're out to make money. You know, my wife's company runs a conference business, and they had a ransomware attack, mm -hmm. um, you know, like the day before their conference. And mm -hmm. it's like they knew how much to charge them, that they would pay them. And there was, you know, the conference would be completely fucked if they hadn't paid them. So yeah, indeed. I mean, they, they can get in. They could be in your system for months. And we've even read about cases where they have looked at your insurance policy and know exactly how much your insurance will pay. Oh, and really? that becomes the <laughs> ransomware to uh, facilitate clever. a quick transaction. But, you know, that's generally an annoyance to a business. Yeah. Um, but, but operational technology being what happens below the, the IT. So 
your SCADA system operating, your plant. Those are the big expensive things for, for mining companies. So your production, protecting your production, because if you had a cyber attack and stop production, you could be a million dollars a day. Um, but also the physical pots and pans of a plant. Um, we've, we've seen destructive cyber attacks elsewhere in the world. So we're really focusing on the most valuable part of any mining company's uh, business and that really being their production and their plant. So is this like the concept is someone can hack in and then somehow perform some sort of activity that damages the actual infrastructure, causing it to overheat or explode or the any number of things? Typical one would be called a man in the middle attack and, and what they do. And you may remember the first really attack that came to light was on the um, Iranian uh, enrichment, the centrifuges. This is about 10 years ago. So at some point, someone uh, (laughs) went in and turned up those centrifuges to about 130%. Mm. Yet their HMI, their human machine interface, was showing everything operating normal at 100%. Mm. And so after about a month of running at 130%, they all disintegrated on virtually the same day. Um, so that's the attack when you don't know what's going on to in, in your plant is the most dangerous piece. And that's what I believe people need to spend more attention on. I'd hate to be the guy that missed that in Iran. Imagine, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's not doing too well now. Um, okay, so taking a step back, uh, you've spent the vast majority of your career in the Canadian military. Um, you ended that job as the the head of the Canadian commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force, Commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Thank you. So can you kind of walk us back to, to where you started there? Did you start in administrative roles or were you an active pilot? Were you flying? How did that all begin? So I was a, uh, I was air crew. I was a a navigator on C-130 Hercules uh, doing tactical airlift missions. So airdrops of equipment of personnel. Yeah. Um, so typically deployed in conflict zones. So the span of my career was everything from the first Gulf War, which happened mm-hmm. uh, 1990-91 on my first tour, um, to virtually every conflict right up to while well, I was commander of the Air Force and we were actively bombing uh, ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Mm-hmm. So you know, I've spent a great deal of my career in or around Afghanistan. Probably enough time to be able to vote in the country if they had a democracy. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's very, very, so it was 33 years of fun. I was flying, always very operational, had lots of opportunities uh, for leadership positions, command of squadrons, command of eight wing in Trenton, which is the largest air force base. And the last 10 years or so of my career was spent in Ottawa, mostly on national security Files. So I was the interlocutor for the Department of National Defense with the National Security Advisor, brief the Prime Minister, come up with force projection options in response to world events. Mm-hmm. You know, one I'm super familiar with was, and it's 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 actually interesting now because when when Putin went into Crimea and in the Donbass in in uh, eastern Ukraine in 2014. Yeah. Um, I had a group of PhDs and Osage work, and we developed Canada's plan to what we were going to do in response to that. So pretty, pretty, yeah, very interesting jobs. So uh, I want to dig into what's going on with Russia today and what their view of what's going on with them and how we should be thinking about that. But I'm going to, it's from my own curiosity. I, I'm always kind of interested in with people in the military in terms of, Obviously, there's a percentage of people that stay, in, and I'm gonna you're gonna need to correct me all the way through this, and I'm gonna butcher <laughs> the nomenclature of everything. But call it operational roles, right? The guys flying the planes and on the ground, and then the guys that move into the sort of leadership, administration, planning, strategic roles. You know, what is the point in your career when you people decide, you know, what I need to, I'm gonna go this more leadership folk, uh, sort of call it an executive route versus an operational route. When does that tend to happen for people? Well, I mean, there's certainly something they need to start planning early. Sorry to cut you off. No, 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 not at all. Um, You know, they really hand in gloves. So the the Air Force is 
Well, we have support trade, we have administration, we have logistics, we have intelligence, we have yep. the, the Air Force is generally led by operators, as mm -hmm. you pointed out, pilots, navigators, which are now air combat systems officers and, and others. And you typically flow between operational roles. So you're flying, you know, I was flying as a, uh, as a captain and I got sent to Ottawa to be aide de con of the governor general for two years. And ah, after cool. those two years, I went right back into the cockpit in Trenton for three years. And so you're in and out, but the last, the last really operational command job you're going to have is, is running a wing. So Trenton was 4,000 people home of all the air mobility assets yeah. in Trenton, Ontario. And that's really the crucible, which you, you know, you, you start to deal with a much broader range of issues. And that's where we choose our senior commanders from, from, from the men and women who have commanded the wings in the air force. Mm -hmm. And typically later, I mean, you know, I was a general officer for, for the last eight years of my career, and it was all spent in Ottawa in four different jobs. The last one being commander of the air force. Do, do you get provided sort of formal leadership educational training on the way oh, yeah, to lot, that? Lot, lots. It's, it's, so it's not like you work on the ground and the guys that figure it out move up. There's actual, you get sent to university, you get sent to programs, et cetera. You do. I mean, obviously, um, it's a, in a merit-based system. Yeah. You're, you know, you're promoted on two aspects, your performance, but also your potential. And your potential is a mix of a number of things, uh, including education. We send all of our majors who are mid-career officers to staff college for a year so it's really a graduate degree because mm -hmm. you can get your master's degree as a result for a full year before they go in to command a squadron i also went for a full year after i was a colonel um to the national security program in toronto for a year of postgraduate study so the military does invest a lot because you know to have a to have 30 years in experience in the military takes 30 years. Yeah, yeah. I can't go hire the Taliban's chief operating officer to come into the Air Force. <laughs> I've got to build them inside, right? Yeah, yeah. Fair so enough. we do invest a lot, um, and and I certainly benefited from it, and I loved every minute of my time in the military. Okay, I want, I'm going to put a pin on this line of questioning because I, I am really curious on how being a part of that sort of leadership uh, training and then I think obviously being a part of operating that and overseeing it has impacted how you've thought about operating in the mining industry and building a corporation. And if you've borrowed any of those um, skill sets from there. <laughs> and uh, Now I, I'm going to stop on that because I do want to keep, I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to make a note. Okay. Uh, but I do want to talk about your experience of Russia. So, can we talked a little bit about this before the conversation, you know, from the outside, I know a lot of people see what's happening in Russia as, you know, insanity in a lot of ways. And they have no, I want to choose my words carefully, no kind of empathy or understanding for the Russian view or for particularly Putin's view of, of why he's doing this. Do you view it as just empirical, uh, empire building ambitions uh, and him trying to reclaim what is rightfully owed to Russia in his mind? Or do you view it as an actual defensive stance against NATO's progressing into the territory? How do you see it? How does the, I mean, what have you learned from your experience dealing with this sort of thing? Well, certainly in 2014, we, we spent a lot of time trying to analyze just this because the question back then was, was he going to continue, you know, beyond the Donbass and and go all the way to Kiev? And so we spent a lot of time trying to appreciate what what was his his aims. It's time we were talking about this because it's almost a year to the day that yeah. that he went into uh, Ukraine again. Um, I think you need to understand a bit about Russia. I'm fond of say, saying, first of all, uh, never underestimate the ability of a Russian to withstand misery. <laughs> okay. And because that, yeah, yeah. you know, it, we, we can't put ourselves in their shoes. I mean, there were bread lines in Russia until the early 90s, right? Mm. Uh, and the fall of the um, Soviet Union hasn't been friendly to them. But Russia has been invaded 15 times in the last 500 years. Mm -hmm. So we're in Canada. We, we, we have very little history. 
um, a couple hundred years of it. Um, our friends to the south, similarly. Oh, Russia has a long history. Yeah. Um, it's been invaded by Finland, Sweden, Poland, Germany a couple of times that you'd know. The Ottomans from, from south, um, the Japanese. So their culture is based on a lot of that experience. And when you think of, you mentioned imperialistic Russia, um, many Russians believe that Russia, just as a country as it stands right now, isn't really representative of, of Mother Russia. Mm. Good example. A Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you may recall, he wrote the Gulag yeah. Archipelago. He was jailed in the, in the Second World War for criticizing Stalin yeah. in a letter home. And he spent all those years in the Gulag. So he was a, he was a, a virulent anti-communist, but he wrote... It's, it's quoted in Henry Kissinger's book, um, that Russia to him and to most includes Russia, all of Belarus, all of Ukraine, and about half of Kazakhstan. That really representing it of what Russia looked like um, at the time. And, you know, even Crimea, for example. Crimea was Russian until 1952 when Nikita Khrushchev, as a... Um, as a, the chairman of the, of the Soviet Union, gave it to Ukraine. Yeah. He happened to be Ukrainian. So uh, <laughs> Crimea was 70% Russian-speaking. So there's some dynamics in there. It doesn't, I'm not making any excuses for, you know, um, for the, the uh, you know, the, the, the attacks and yeah, the invasion yeah. and the misery that's been putting on. But, you know, it helps to un understand it. And then the piece that, you know, no one really knows is how does he maintain power? Obviously through oligarchs and all of his cronies now. Um, but I suspect he's pretty vulnerable. Remember that picture of him sitting at the table and his defense minister was about 60 feet away at the yeah, other yeah. end of the table? I mean, some weird stuff going on. Um, but as we've seen, uh, Russia, Russia tried to do something that's very, very difficult to do. Three armored columns from three different directions converging on kiev combined arms so the, the most complicated thing you can do in warfare is is to coordinate ground maneuver with precision attack from the air and other fires missiles and the rest of we, we practice mm -hmm. this all the time it's really really hard and the russians were found wanting yeah um Poor training. They're, they they have no senior non commissioned officer corps, right? It's it's officers barking orders right to the troops and and running in with them. So they have no one to pick up the initiative. All these things that we suspected, we found wanting. So now I go back to my my first point. So this wasn't surprising to the Western military leaders that this occurred. Or oh no, I I I think it I think it was. Yeah. I think we gave them a bit more credit than than was due but you know quantity has a quality all of its own so yeah. back in you know the the cold war the sheer number of russian forces coupled with this you know this ability to withstand great misery and misery being you know casualties the rest um yeah it's it's been it's been a pretty uh Pretty dirty war. Is this so? Then is this basically a a war of attrition now, where who can outlast? Who can be the most miserable, the most longest? Well, you know the hardest thing about war is ending them. Yeah, we don't we don't do that well. I'm I'm thinking of every conflict I've participated in, and I don't remember too many of them having parades at the end of them declaring victory. So now you have yeah. You have Putin, who probably needs some kind of win because, on some accounts, there's probably been two hundred thousand Russian casualties. Um, half of those probably fatalities. Um, so that's a whole generation of of Russian youth. I mean, that's more than Americans died in the Vietnam War. When you think about it, have died on Ukrainian soil. So in a year, that's right. So how does what does a win look like for him? And then you've got um, Zelensky who's, you know, we're not stopping until every, you know, square foot of Ukraine is ours. And, you know, as long as he's supported from the West, 
it's a lot easier to protect your homeland, right? Like when right. you're defending a village because your grandmother lives in the building behind you, that, that's a lot more incentive than Russians running into the face of that hail of fire. Yeah, you're pretty motivated. Yeah. Yeah. So is there, do you see a path where this gets de-escalated over the coming year or years? Or is this the new normal? You know, I've, I spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I mean, let's just, uh, let's just think of Joe Biden, who was, who was there just a few days ago. Yeah. Um, the things he's saying about Russia are not conducive to actually getting someone to talk, right? And to to de-escalate these things, to end wars, you need to have diplomacy and discussion. I don't see too much diplomats out there. I think we're in a time and space where politicians speak just to their base. Yeah. Who is left to be the statesman to help end this? Yeah, I know it's odd, right? Because the left and the right are both very populist now, and there's... Is there a Canadian prime minister that you remember or that you, you know, you served under uh, in the military that you thought was a particularly good statesman that had a real handle on this? Um, well, I mean, I've, I, I'd say Brian Mulroney, hmm. probably. I mean, he came up as a, as a lawyer and did a lot, and he was a very good negotiator. I mean, you got, you got a lot done, the Commonwealth boycott of South Africa, yeah, yeah. you know, Ending uh, acid rain, getting Canada into the G7. I mean, he, he a lot of things that people yeah. forget about Back because when you could be a conservative and an environmentalist at the same yeah, time. He was the greenest prime yeah, minister yeah. we ever had. Right, created more. Anyways, I'm not. Uh, I'm apolitical to be, to be honest with you, yeah. but I was just thinking of all the prime ministers I served under, and that's the last one I thought was a statesman. And so, you know, back to Russia. You know, an interesting development in the last week or so is, you know, the Chinese are coming out and saying not so mildly in support of Russia, saying they're actually just responding to, you know, Western aggression or, or aggression is not the right word, but sort of infringement on their territory. And that coincides with us finding Chinese, <laughs> what, what do we call them, spy balloons, I guess? What, is there, there's a better term. Well, I don't think it's plural, to be, to be straight. I think it's, there was one. But aren't uh, they shooting stuff down? Yeah, all over? But, uh, yeah. but let's unpack that for a yeah. second. So <laughs> this is what I uh, want to know. Yeah. There was a great picture in the Wall Street Journal, the, the the first balloon, the one that was went all the way across the U.S. and was shot down, and it was a balloon the size of the um, of the Statue of Liberty, and it had. Is that how big it was? Yeah, that's how big the balloon was. Okay. There's a picture of a U-2 spy plane taken from the cockpit, flying over it at ninety thousand feet, and you could see the array of antennas and solar panels underneath. So. That was some kind of intelligence gathering asset that was shot down, and mm. Americans have all the pieces. What it exposed to, to NORAD is this vulnerability to these balloons. And there's a reason for it, because most, most of the radars that are in North America are tuned to ignore things going that slowly. So you avoid getting like flocks of birds as a radar return. And a balloon only goes as fast as the wind. So they're normally filtered out. Don't even see mm. them because they're not important. They're not a risk. We're looking for fast-moving objects that, that pose the, the biggest threat. So you get this big balloon, you shoot it down, and then you start looking for balloons. And holy geez, there's balloons everywhere. Well, I don't know if you heard about this, but the Northern Illinois Balloon Association... I think NIMBA or yeah, yeah, okay. um, came out a few days after they shot down the one over Alaska and said that their balloon, which had already circumnavigated the globe seven times, and has, it stopped, stopped talking <laughs> to them. So there's obviously a lot of, and I didn't know this, I mean, I'm sure your listeners didn't, but apparently there's a lot of, a lot of geeky people out there who put balloons up and, and watch them go around the world, so... No. <laughs> the U.S. is flying around killing all these. So, things. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. you have this overreaction for a few days where we're, we blew up three more, but they've come out and said that they're highly unlikely that they were. Is this, like, unusual to use a balloon for this sort of thing? I mean, does the U.S., Canada, other countries, do, do we have not, balloons all over? No, the not that yeah. I know of. It's a very, it's a very first time in mm. my 30, well, I've been retired almost five years, so let's say the last 40 years I've never heard of a a balloon up there. But what's even more troubling that you may not have seen is um, G7 
just earlier this week, the Air Force came out and said that it had found and, and removed a number of sensor beacons that were floating in the Arctic Ocean. I did see that. Boys in, or something. Yeah. yeah. So more intelligence gathering. No, they'll say it's climate, you know, but it's in Canadian territory. So, you know, that's that's pushing against the norms that are the strength of, you know, Western rules-based democracy is yeah. normative activity. So flying a balloon over... U.S. is the farthest thing you can do from normative. So, you know, it's um, they're going to push as much. Chinese are going to push because they don't believe they participated in the creation of the rules-based order, and that U.S. hegemony yeah. is is getting in the way of of a Chinese-shaped global rules-based Chinese rules-based order. Are are so, you know, from my perspective knowing very little about this stuff, you know. Oh, you know lots. lots uh, thank you. Uh, I look at what's going on right now, and if you'd asked me that we'd be in this situation, you know, in 2019 or 2020, I would have thought it not impossible, but highly unlikely, right? Is this something that military and political leaders and call it the Western world ha- have contemplated and been planning for a a I get a further fracturing, I would say, between the West and maybe the more, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, the more dictatorial powers, the Chinas, the Russias, the Irans, that are, or is this, are they being caught off guard by this? Well, I would say, um, you know, the great thing about the military, you do a lot of planning, right. and you tend to look at the geostrategic environment and yeah. understand where the risks are to Canada, and and. China's always been very high up there. I was the the military interlocutor with the Chinese People Liberation Army. I used to, we used to get together twice a year. I'd go to Beijing, I'd host them in Ottawa, and we would coordinate what kind of military to military activities we'd have. Okay, we'll take a platoon of your army and we'll 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 match them with ours for a small exercise. Yeah. Just just you know, trying to build some common ground to work yeah. from but leaders must be thinking this right they must be getting their backs up and thinking more defensively than they have and well ironically one yeah. of the, one of the things that that people believe putin went into was to was to fracture nato yeah obviously he wants he doesn't want nato on his border so ukraine becoming a member of nato i think for for the members of nato right now was silly to imagine that mm. we would even allow that dialogue to go forward um but it did, and and he acted, and because of German dependence on oil from Russia, because the Germans closed all their nuclear reactors mm-hmm. after Fukushima, uh, in this notional green transition, um, he believed that it fractured. NATO is more um, is closer than it has been in the last twenty five years since the end of the Cold War. I've never seen the messaging coming out, the activities, the amount of nations that are providing forces and equipment. Um, and and Germany's just yeah. increased their defense budget by 100 billion euros. Yeah. So it's had the opposite effect. So, so like that's... Nothing like a common enemy to bring people together. Well, I a guess. little bit. Well, so this kind of leads me into the next <laughs> part of the conversation. And, you know, this is the Resource Insider podcast. And... It makes me start to think, you know, what is the role of critical resources uh, going forward, right? Both in terms of something that can be potentially weaponized, right? I, I think, tell me what you think about this, but I think there's no chance Putin would have had the confidence to in, invade Ukraine had he not thought he had the EU by the balls, basically, on dependence on natural gas, right? That was the, the big stick he had to keep them at bay. You know, clearly he misjudged that or their willingness to, to put up yeah, with that. Yeah, but he, 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 he was probably right in his mind. And we hardly did anything after the Russians went into Ukraine in reality. Mm. And Germany just doubled down on, on Russian oil, built the Nord Stream 2 pipeline mm-hmm. to facilitate all, all of those things. So, um, But the, the, you know, the EU basically placed no priority on energy independence right on critical element independence and they they offloaded that to russia uh i don't want to be so callous yeah. to say they also offloaded their carbon emissions to russia so that you know the eu could be green but i think what's going to happen is is 
Western nations are really waking up to things we've been talking about in the newsletter for a long time. I'm sure you guys have been very, very aware of it, JDS, that countries need to control critical resources in order to to be countries, to survive. 100%. I'll give an example. Like Sovereignty, um, probably don't spend enough time thinking about sovereignty. What does sovereignty mean? Sovereignty means the ability to act you know, when you want your sovereign over all your territory. Look what happened at the beginning of, of COVID. Canada d- d- lost the ability to produce vaccines. Yeah. We're a G7 country. The personal protective equipment and masks, we, we didn't have anything. And we're the country that went through SARS in 2004. I would have thought there'd be 100 million masks sitting yeah. out there. So we've been lazy to what uh, the tools are to allow us to be sovereign. Now extend that into into the military for a second, then I'll go into the resource center. I always, I always said the Air Force was a guarantor of Canadian sovereignty because the Air Force is the only service that could get to every square foot of our country and act with lethal force if necessary. That's, that's what mm. you have an Air Force for. But I also told the government that when war comes, you go to war with the Air Force you have, not the one you wish you had. Right. And that's why investing you know, over time consistently is really, really important because you, you can't predict, to your point, in 2019, could, could you imagine where we are right now? And so they finally come around and bought the F-35. We should be flying them. And anyway, so we've lost a, a decade. Is now, there any chance they get that to the scale that would be required to actually defend Canada from a significant... Uh, well, in, partner, in partnership with the U.S., certainly NORAD, yeah. I mean... Um, yeah, there are some more tools that we need, but but yes, um, and but we're a country of almost forty billion now, um, you know. So we've committed to spending two percent of GDP, which most wealthy Western nations are trying to achieve, and we've committed to do that for NATO. If we spent two percent of GDP on the military, I'd feel a lot better for the safety of my family and my children um, over the over the long term. Now let's go just for your. Resource Insider, what about critical minerals and supply chains around the resource sector? It's No one should be surprised that the Alouette smelter, big aluminum smelter, part owned by Rio Tinto in in Quebec, Quebec, was hacked. Ransomware, shut down for a couple of weeks. Well, Russia is the, produces 6% of the world's aluminum. Those things don't happen by accident. So, you know, Russia as a state has a little army of of hackers in uniform that do this as a military role. Then there's all those other people on the periphery of it who are... Contractors, I guess. Yeah, they're freelance contractors who are often directed where to put their energy. So ransomware is a business, right? They just want the money. Yeah, yeah. That's all. But... They can also be steered to areas that they want. Why was um, Arubis, the largest copper smelter in Europe, Mm. in Germany, hacked? Why did a U.S. natural gas pipeline blow up right around the start of the war a year ago? These things don't happen by accident. They're, They're planned. So protecting those assets, critical assets and supply chains around critical minerals for stuff that we're going to need, batteries and the rest, incredibly important. Isn't it funny that 95% of of the critical minerals we need for advanced production are controlled by China? Yeah. I mean, that's shocking to me. Yeah. Because it's just a the money. They, they can do it cheaper than anyone else. All and rare earth, basically. Yeah. Uh, the majority of lithium processing, yeah. it's, it's wild. Yeah, it is, and we need to fix it. But what's amazing about it, I actually think, and something we're excited about at Resource Insider as resource investors, is there's going to be, it's going to have to be a major, major, um, like, onshoring of resource uh, development, of actual resource projects, be that mines, be that energy projects, what have you. Uh, But also, you know, the second and tertiary levels of actually processing those minerals, processing that energy. And I think... That's going to become the one of the defining characteristics of the next decade. And I think for people in North America, uh, in our industry, it's a huge opportunity, right? Because we've got 
resources in Canada. We've got a population and a finance, you know, the finance capital of the world in the United States. We've got a relatively inexpensive, highly effective labor force in Mexico. It's, you know, the U.S. is rather North America is one of, if not the only area in the world that's can really kind of stand alone and bring back these industries. And I mean, I'm excited about it as a resource investor, the opportunities for you guys as a mining resource contractor, entrepreneurial arm, you know, are tenfold. No, I, listen, I, I agree yeah, 100%. I'm preaching to the choir. No, here, I mean, <laughs> listen, if uh, if in 2019 you just changed the name of your company to put lithium in it, it'd be up, you know, yeah, 100% yeah. today. Just go look at the the what the stock market's doing. It it's, But that's all about being sovereign. Those are sovereign decisions, and, and the government needs to facilitate and enable this onshoring. It needs to do it by investment in the sector. It needs to do it by regulatory uh, rules. It needs to... You know, the environment's very important, but so is protecting uh, rare. So some of this has to be facilitated to get us to a point where we're not reliant on China or Russia for these supply chains. So why do you think these attacks are occurring? You know, is it is it like a a warning shot kind of like, look what we can do at this point? Or are they, you know, are they really trying to deliberately interrupt the flow of materials, the development of things? and slow down, I guess, effectively the economy and the livability of, of North America. Yeah, I think more, really I think more the, scale, right? I think more the latter. Well, it happens a lot and you don't hear about it. Yeah. Right. Okay. I mean, even public companies who probably need to disclose to their shareholders are probably not us are changing laws about actually yeah. having to um, come out within 10 days of an attack so they could track it. I, I, but I do think it's, it's the latter. I do think it's deliberate. I do think it's focused, and I do think it is probing at the su- supply chains um, that are important to, you know, certainly North American production. Um, you know, for your investors, I, I spend more time wondering what kind of cyber defenses companies have put up, certainly producers, mm. because look at um, Copper Mountain here in BC. So, Copper Mountain was, in, by all accounts, an, an IT hack, so not operational technology. It just went into their IT yeah. system. But they shut down their, they shut down out of an abundance of caution, they shut down their production. I, I think the production is of copper there is, I'd have to look at the numbers again, but let's just say 1.2 million a day. Yeah. They were shut, they said, for seven days. I, I think they could still be impacted by this, um, and now we're like six weeks later. So that production is huge. And if you're a shareholder, you know, it's an interesting thing. Go, go look at the number of shorts in Copper Mountain in the month leading up to that attack. Really? Yeah. Shorts were an all-time high. I read an article on it. So I said, Christ, are these guys getting so refined that they're shorting in the market at the same time they're going <laughs> to bring the production down? And it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, you make a lot more money they shorting the stock than ends. you do on the $5 million. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. So someone um, will unpack this at some point. So I think investors need to need to spend a bit more time you know, if you do get a chance to talk to leadership of these companies, what, what are you doing to protect your supply chain? And most of them said, well, I have an IT department that's looking after, but it's, it, that's, not, that's not the key. It's the operational technology in the business that I'm trying to sell. Are the CEOs and the COOs of, of most mining resource companies you've spoken to, are, is this something that's on their radar, something they're taking seriously, or are they just getting up to speed with it now? Well... I think they're getting a lot more interested in it because they're seeing what's happening yeah. here on our on our doorstep, and they're seeing the impacts of that. So, you know, if I'm, you know, you name the the producer, um, right up to the largest, um, yeah, I think CEOs think that they're they're doing it right, but you know, you can't rely on your IT. It's a leadership issue. Yeah. This it's it's you really need to spend a lot of time thinking about how to protect those assets that I talked about production and, you know, the physical infrastructure. What do you, so, you know, we have a lot of mining CEOs who listen to this podcast. If, if there's a guy or call me, Mike could JDS operational <laughs> technologies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that, 
is that the advice that they start reaching out to someone like you or experts in the field that they're able to that can help them identify the I guess weak points of their operation and help build out the capacity to protect them? Well, I I mean I my my discussions always uh, elicit some interest because I I can provide a lot of insights. I've told you I spent the last 10 years in national security files in Ottawa, including dealing from a pan government on on some major hacks of the Canadian government, yeah. the one on the National Research Council by China, for example. So I can speak to some strength from my position about what the real risks are. And, and now that you're starting to see it get into supply chains, um, meaningful supply chains to our mm. economy that you know, revolve around the resource industry, I do think that CEOs and boards, you know, you need skill sets on boards of people who can actually talk uh, about cybersecurity meaningfully, not having gone and done a three-day course at, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, somewhere who, who can just make sure the CEO says, yes, I've, I've got it looked after you. You need to own the issue a bit more because all it takes is shutting down your production for a week and... How much share shareholder wealth have you just wiped out? Yeah, you're hooped. It's yeah. a, it's a bad situation. Is is the government taking this seriously? Is the Canadian government is this a priority for them, or is this outside of the scope of what? Well, they they, they followed the U.S. lead and came out with a critical um, mineral strategy. Yeah. Um, not surprisingly, theirs is almost completely focused on minerals on their green agenda. Green so those li- lithiums lithium, and the rest. Yeah, yeah. The US one is much more expansive. Yeah. Um, I've done some work in zirconium, just to say it's not on Canada's, not on Canada's list, but it is on the US. And interestingly, you, your listeners probably heard this because it came out a few months ago. Because of the US Defense Production Act um, from the 60s, uh, it doesn't differentiate between Canada and the US. So the US government is able to invest in Canadian miners who are going to bring critical mm-hmm. mineral production online. I sat through a couple of seminars in Washington. Yeah. I've been in discussion with our embassy there, trying to see how we could take advantage of it from a business perspective. But they are funding Canadian businesses in the production of critical minerals on their list, all part of that onshoring. So yes, government does have, have a huge role. Um, what I've seen out of Ottawa is a list, kind of some initiatives, but but very light. And you think it needs to be a lot more focused and uh, should be investing a lot more heavily in the people that are, you know, trying to expand and onshore yes. those minerals. Yeah. Well, that kind of circles back to the the question I thought, or I came up with early on is, you know, there's a real shortage of talented professionals in the mining industry, right? We've been in a more or less a bear market for the better part of a decade. We've got a few good blips here and there, but for the most part, uh, we haven't seen a tremendous number of new young professionals come up through the space. I know uh, at JDS, you guys do a lot of work uh, in terms of, of bringing young you know, engineers and technical people into the business. And, and even I know Jeff talked about sending guys to university that yep. he knew from Kelowna and whatnot. You know, how, you know, how important is it? Like, what kind of work are you guys doing to sort of build the next generation of professionals? How important do you think that is? And then, you know, finally, is there anything you learn from the, the training programs and the, the people development aspect of the military that you're applying today or you think we should be? Okay, so the, so the first one, um, yes, I, I, I think you, you have to invest in the next generation of mm. miners. And, you know, we, we'll see that at PDAC in a couple of weeks where, you know, um, you'll have a lot of young people there and there's scholarships and the rest. We at JDS, Jeff sponsors a number of, of students um, to his alma mater, the uh, Montana School of Mines, so mm-hmm. specifically to mining engineering, and we give them jobs in the, in the summer. Internally to our folks, we spent a lot, just to tie this into the military, I, you know, I, I came into the military right out of high school. You didn't need a university degree. I saw Top Gun and I went right to the recruiting center <laughs> and uh, I was in uniform like four months later um, and I was flying airplanes 18 months after that. So um, they paid for me to finish my undergraduate degree. 
They sent me to staff college for a year. Yeah. They paid for me to complete a graduate degree and then another year. So all of that was investment to, you know, produce a leader who had the ability to provide strategic advice and make strategic decisions because, you know, Canada has to do that. So a big part of it. And, and I think the mining industry should be n no different. And at JDS, we, we invest a lot in the experiences of our, our young people. I mean, we are a business, so we have to balance all of those things. Um, but from what I've seen, I, I wouldn't, I don't think we're doing a bad job in the mining industry, but to your point about young CEOs, you're right. I don't see many of out them. Most of them are geologists. Seem to seem to end up as uh, as CEOs, and that's no nothing against geologists. But there seems to be a path people follow. I mean, there's the odd mining engineer, um, but you don't see a lot of young people. Um, well, there's a big leading. age gap as well, too. Right? There's very few people today. I'd say in their 40s and 30s uh, in the mining industry right now. Um, most of the, you know, big name CEOs, I guess you call them in the mining space are in their sixties or seventies now. And there's still, they do exist out there. There's the Nolan Watsons of Sandstorm and Greg yeah. Smith of Equinox gold in their forties, but they're the exception, not the rule. There's not as many, I think, as you would have seen a generation ago. Um, anyways, there's no real short, quick answer to this question. Uh, but you know, I know, my alma mater, uh, University of Toronto. I mean, they had like uh, the mining engineering class this year was I was told something like 10, 13 people. It's it was tiny. You know? We're sponsoring a mining scholarship there as well. Yeah, and when I went, it was three or four times the size of that. So it's um, yeah, there there aren't as much people going into it, but I do think that will change if we see a bull market, right? If people see there's a lot of money to be made, opportunities, jobs to be had, etc., we'll see. I think you know, as always a rush of talent to where there's opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I'm my, uh, my daughter just graduated from your, uh, from your alma mater not too long ago. And, uh, I'm trying to put myself in, in her mind. I don't think mining would have ever hit the radar. I mean, yeah. back my generation, anyways, I'm a bit older than you. Um, you know, people go into exploratory geology because they wanted the outdoors yeah. and the rest. And, I think now with, you know, where we've got to on the people's attention spans due to COVID and Twitter and all social media has changed what people value and what they, what they see. So it is a lot about, about me first and, 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 you know, quick, quick yeah. wealth, as opposed to, you know, probably being more curious about the world around you and going into those fields that, you know, like mining that, um, offer very fulfilling careers. Well, Mike, I think we're coming up on about an hour now. Um, is there anything we didn't talk about today you think I should have touched on? Anything you want to talk about in a bit more detail? Any message for our audience? Um, well, no, I, I think we had a, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking, you know, about Russia and about, you know, my first hour every morning is reading the BBC, the Wall Street Journal, gathering my my intelligence of, of where we're at because it helps me frame how our business and, and what we're seeing and what we're doing. I, I think it adds a lot of value appreciating um, some of the stuff that we've that we've talked about. And I think that the resource sector um, is quite vulnerable in this regard. I think we're seeing a lot more of these um, these attacks become you know, it's becoming more mainstream. No mm. one's surprised anymore, uh, unless you're a Copper Mountain shareholder, for example. <laughs> um, but, you know, they have still not have come out and revealed what's going on. I've been trying to get into them to talk to them about JDS operational technology and yeah. and the cybersecurity piece. They're, they're closed as uh, like a clamshell. And I suspect globally there's probably 10 Copper Mountains right now you know, I mentioned Arubis, uh, you know, the largest copper smelter in Europe shut down for a week because of a cyber attack. That, that They don't happen by accident, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so huh. Russia says, well, okay, we don't need your oil anymore. And he says, okay, well, we're going to screw up your copper. That's that's the world we're in right now, right? Yeah. And you think it's going to get worse? Well, I don't see any hopeful signs it's going to it's going to improve. Um but it's just all about the preparation for these things. And, 
you know, for a country like Canada to be able to make sovereign decisions, they have to invest in in the areas of real importance. And we touched on the military, but it's not only that, it's critical supply chains. Do you see the shortage of children's and baby, like Tylenol and pain medication? I I saw that and I, was it just a rush because there was a, a flu going around no, in children or? I mean, maybe, but it was, it lasted months and months and months where you couldn't buy like baby's yeah. pain medication. So I have a, you know, 11 month old child. I was in England at the time that this happened and I bought, you know, a bag full of, of paracetamol or Tylenol in Britain. And I brought it back and I gave a bunch to friends and stuff who couldn't get them anywhere. And like I had friends that were driving to the U S to, to buy medication for the kids. The only way you could get it is going to the emergency room and waiting like God knows how long, 10 hours here now in Canada. It's, you know, it's shocking the like breakdown of the system, which seems very quickly to me. Well, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Someone needs to be thinking about these things, right? That's why we put a gov- government's number one job is to the health and safety of its citizens and the protection of its borders. So what's in that, right? Where's the list of all the things that we need to be able to do ourselves? Because when the shit hits the fan, like we, we imagine the U.S. is going gonna, is gonna to be there for us. Well, you know, they're good friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but gonna I want to sure be self-sufficient. Their people have vaccines and well, their people course. have masks and their people have Tylenol first. That's if you don't job. participate in ballistic missile defense, that missile that's coming to Calgary instead of to Montana isn't going to be a high enough priority, right? Yeah, I'm a little lost to what to say next. I, I guess there's nothing really most people can do about this except for the next election. Yeah, I think, it, yeah. I mean, the political process is, uh, political system isn't ideal, but it's, it's what we have. And yeah. that's, you know... People need to talk about it. Resource sector CEOs need to be talking to the government about the risks to their industry and the importance of it so that policies come out that are favorable to the resource sector to produce and onshore all of the stuff that we've talked about. They have a role to play. I mean, CEOs have a lot of heft and they they, they need to be um, uh, working with gov- government to facilitate timelines around permitting and, and everything else. These are, you know... Value creation is tough, and we're in the business of value creation in the resource sector, but it, it can have an important role in in where the country is headed. So you have um, a unique combination of experience in government and industry. So you know, let's imagine a couple of years into the future, uh, we've got a new prime minister. Uh, you know, Justin Trudeau has gone back to being a highly paid drama teacher at a prestigious high school. Um, Not too far from here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we have a new prime minister, and you're an advisor to him. What would you say are the issues that Canada should be focusing on in the first year in office? Wow. That's should, a hard question. You should have planted that question with me before. I mean, we could talk an hour and a half just on that. I'd love to advise him just on the issue of sovereignty. Mm. What is it going to take for Canada to be sovereign? And you come through the list, okay, adequate investment in defense, because being sovereign means, you know, finding out, like, how long have those sensors the Chinese put in our Arctic been there? Like, that, that worries me. Um, so, so having the ability to sense and act um, mm. from space, from the air, all those are important. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then you've got production of critical items. So let's just talk about, you know, vaccines. And there's a whole list of that, but food supply chain, food security, um, you know, and then you move into what we've talked about in the resource sector. You need policies to onshore, policies and investments to onshore, the, not only the mining, but the production and adding into the supply chain, those critical minerals, mm-hmm. um, that we've been speaking about and the transportation of them as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 I've been surprised at, um, the pipeline issue. I mean, um, you know, one of the reasons, one of the easiest ways to be sovereign is to produce your own energy. Yes. And we have the ability to do that if we wanted to. And, you know, as an aside, not to, not to, uh, go too far in the, environmental side um the way of making production of these things greener is by you know supporting it mm-hmm. and i i'm sure suncor and the and the rest of the oil patch are 
uh, as green as as you can conceivably be in that industry because of the investments that they've they've made if the government made more then we could have that energy dependency and we wouldn't be forced to respond to um you know oil prices set in Riyadh yeah of all things so yeah, yeah. energy security is important and maybe there's a transition I, I actually like the idea of small nuclear reactors um I find that a very very fascinating mm-hmm. imagine you have an underground mine just put one of these small nuclear reactors in there instead of trying to get a power line 200 miles across or think about so, Canada's Arctic right like you know how much of Canada's Arctic is powered on diesel a hundred percent yeah so yeah and I think Small nuclear reactors, we know even the, you know, they're, they're safe. Um, they're not Chernobyl reactors there. Um, yeah, you know, this is uh, my frustration with the renewable energy movement and to some degree and that there's there's basically a cure for emissions already, nuclear power. We, and then mm-hmm. to, as a very, very effective Band-Aid, natural gas. You know, natural and gas produces a hugely... Uh, significant less greenhouse gas emissions than coal fire power plants uh, all over the U.S. There's enough natural gas in North America to power it, you know, 100 times over if you put the distribution systems in place. But, I mean, there's been over $5 trillion in subsidies to renewable energy, and they've reduced the emissions by, like, a couple of percent. It's yeah. like if we'd just done that in natural gas, the actual positive impact would have been, you know, tenfold, hundredfold. Um well, I read that China is now or about to become the largest producer of electric vehicles in the world. Huh. And that has done absolutely nothing. It's, it's had a negative effect well, on, on emissions. The largest builder of coal-fired power plants in the world as well, well right pr- now. Precisely. the rest of the world combined. Yeah. And you just look at the undersea cable for one of those, you know, those windmills that are out in the water. And the undersea cable is almost all copper. Mm-hmm. Um, tons of it and then just think of the mining process to it so we've created this false economy a a little bit in our minds so you know people used to say when they say mike what should we invest in fighters or should we invest in ships and i said well it's not fighter or ships it's fighters and ships so you know much to this point to get to the greener pastures that you want you need to make the investments in some of these technologies yeah. and and have a transition plan we know we're not yeah. getting off of fossil fuels completely i mean that'd be wonderful but it's 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 not it happening can't happen. anytime soon and yeah. even bill gates wrote that he believed that you can't have um the the reduction in greenhouse gases without nuclear reactors yeah so, yeah that was his whole thesis yeah and uh you know to your point about the level of development that has to happen i you know i was reading the other day in one of the bank reports that in order to hit EV projections for copper, we would need to mine more copper by 2050 than we've mined in human history to date at that point. Wow. So I love stats yeah, like yeah. that. It's so it's pretty wild. Um, and I, you know, that is a bit my frustration that people don't often think through the secondary and tertiary consequences of these, right? You know, no, it's all, it's, it's virtue signaling, you know, where did I read that uh, the highest percentage of ownership of electric vehicles by population is Norway? Yeah. And they all have a second vehicle that they actually drive. Yeah. And there's enormous subsidies for it in Norway. So but like, but they, the they have this, yeah. but it's good to go to the store and back. And if they want to go anywhere in Norway in the cold, they they drive their, their, <laughs> their gas yeah, yeah. combustion cars. It was an interesting stat. So, um, you know, I, I think it's... It, it's it's great to invest the energy in solving some of these problems, but we just can't be bloody minded about it. We've we've got to really think. Yeah, you need to uh, do a little bit of math there. I think to to figure out you know what can actually be done and how to do it and a reasonable progression of that. All right, Mike, appreciate your time today. It's a lot to learn. Uh, I'd love to have you back on sometime. No, I'd I'd, I'd love uh, to and and. You know, I know you're a resource insider podcast, but, uh, um, you know, I think some of the things we talked about are pretty important to the resource industry. Well, it all interconnects, right? And it all plays together. And I know a lot of our listeners, a lot of uh, the investors that read our newsletter are very, very focused on these big sort of macro global changes, whether it's uh, 
politically um, or otherwise. So yeah, I mean, yeah. they're they're not unique. Just for, I mean, I when when this crisis started, I ended up doing a lot of talks to high net worth. Yeah. investors and that because people were wondering where they should be putting their money as a result what was it going to mean to the economy yeah, yeah. and um and likewise your your listeners should be thinking geostrategically as well well it's kind of frightening times but you know never let a good uh crisis go to waste yeah it's, that's a yeah. great point all right all right thanks a lot mike thanks appreciate you coming no, in i enjoyed it thank you did you enjoy today's podcast me too If you want more like it, head over to resource-insider.com, my website where you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter, where you're going to get instant access to all of our new podcasts and videos. We're going to keep you up to date on what's going on in the mining industry. And most importantly, we're going to show you where we're investing our own money and what I think are the hottest deals and opportunities in the sector. Thanks for listening.